Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. He was a quintessential New Yorker. You know, he was upper crust, but he was a regular guy. He had George going on here for a number of years. He was always in Central Park. He was bicycling. He was doing everything. He wasn't the sedentary dad with, you know, yuppie kid living in Tribeca. You know, he was, you know, very active person intellectually and physically. People who are like that tend to like New York. He's cocky and he's a Kennedy and he's indestructible and he thinks he can do things that other people can't do. Don't do that. Don't come up to my girlfriend when she's on the beach alone. Welcome to episode four of Fatal Voyage, the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. I'm your host, ex-homicide detective Colin McLaren. In previous episodes, we have learned how Jr. grew up both blessed and burdened by his unique birthright. His mother wanted him to be a good Kennedy and not a bad Kennedy like his cousins. And how his seeming immunity from the so-called Kennedy curse also instilled in him a self-confidence that occasionally bordered on recklessness. They would go take six packs of beer and drink and they would take off their clothes and skinny dip in the ocean off the dock. And, you know, at midnight, two o'clock in the morning, he would regularly do that. They liked showing off and they liked getting naked in public places. Now we're going to explore how that self-confident swagger came to make Junior the toast of 1990s New York City, but also leave him exposed to the potential dangers he simply couldn't control. He didn't think anything was going to happen to him because pretty much nothing did. Where he went, he had a good way about him. He made friends with everybody. New Yorkers liked him. And also New Yorkers and Americans liked him and wanted to protect him because he was the little kid who was at his father's coffin, you know, saluting. He was a victim. His father got murdered. Americans wanted to protect him, not hurt him. After graduating from Brown University, JFK Jr. settled down in New York in the mid-1980s, working in a series of modestly paid jobs in City Hall, including the 42nd Street Development Corporation and the New York Office of Business Development. As reporter Andy Tillett explains, Junior worked hard at being just one of the guys, without any of the airs and graces his famous name might command. You know, he came from a fantastically wealthy family. He was blessed with opportunities most people would kill for. He was, to all intents and purposes, American royalty. But he had that man of the people quality about him. His boss at the Office of Business Development later said that Junior earned just $20,000 a year there and worked, and I'm quoting here, in the same crummy cubby hole as everybody else. He added, I heaped on the work and I was always pleased. 
Here's Lawrence Schwarzwald, who was one of New York City's leading paparazzi photographers at that time. With maybe one or two exceptions, and those people were photographers, I never met a person who met John who didn't like him. I mean, everybody down in the neighborhood, in the restaurants and coffee shops in the area, you know, just working class people who had an encounter with him. I've never heard a bad word about him. When he did the ribbon cuttings, well, they revealed the cover of George for the first time with Cindy Crawford on the cover. John's introduction and speech at that time, I knew for certain that this man was going to run for president. He was so eloquent and articulate and had such a uh, charisma with the crowd. It was almost like a political speech. And I think his destiny would have been you know, phenomenal. He would have run for office. I think he would have been a uniter. But fellow reporter Leon Wagner who had been assigned to cover Junior since the 1970s, reveals that despite his charm, charisma and that man-of-the-people quality, behind the scenes, the young Kennedy was not above exploiting his famous name when it suited. Now, John had health problems, despite, you know, his handsome good looks, his chiseled physique. He had dyslexia. He had attention deficit disorder. Those were problems, obviously. He got into Brown University, you know, one of the finest Ivy League schools, despite it all, probably some degree because of his famous name. But he had terrible troubles keeping up with his work. And his mother helped him out, though. She used her considerable clout to bail him out time after time after time. And she peppered his teachers and administrators at Brown with letters in her own handwriting, asking for them to make exceptions for John. Some of them rebelled, but she won. And I've seen some of the copies of some of the letters. You know, they were very heartfelt. And once you got one of these letters, I have to think, as a professor or administrator, that you'd frame it. What a hell of a thing, you know, with your name on it and signed by Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Kyle Bailey knew Junior through their shared love of flying and was perhaps the last man to see him alive. He too recalls how Junior embraced all New York had to offer and how his common touch made him equally comfortable on the red carpet or hanging out with ordinary New Yorkers. He was very down to earth with everybody. I mean, just a genuine, friendly, normal guy. And that's the way he conveyed himself through his life. Even though he had millions and millions of dollars from his parents and the family fortune, he pretty much went about his life like he was just a normal guy and a a very nice person who wanted to be a success in life. He kind of always was super, super dressed down, almost to kind of throw people off so they wouldn't recognize him. But yet, it would always be the image like that you would see in the supermarket tabloids of them like on the street with the hat on backwards, with the sunglasses. So you're typically just seeing him super, super dressed down. You would never see him like in, say, a polo shirt and jeans with the belt on and Doc Siders. It would always be sweatpants, t-shirt, hat on backwards and glasses. I guess he's dressing up for work every day during the week, and it's like the weekends are just, I don't care what I look like. I want to go out and fly and have fun, and then if I go out on Saturday night, I'll do what I need to do. And everybody kind of saw him that. There there were people who would walk by him, not even know who he was. True crime 
Mysteries. Trying to get to the heart of stories that have more questions than answers is my passion. I feel compelled. It's like moving the pieces of a puzzle together. With each connection, I see more of the bigger picture. That's why I like to play Best Fiends. Best Fiends is an exciting puzzle that challenges your brain while not being too difficult. Perfect for any kind of downtime, Best Fiends lets you collect adorable characters as the story advances from level to level, and you don't need an internet connection to play. Plus, they're always putting out new themed challenges, so the game is never boring. I find myself playing Best Fiends whenever I have downtime. With over 100 million downloads, I'm clearly not the only one who's obsessed. As more of my family and friends have started playing, we've gotten into some pretty friendly competitions surrounding our progress in the game, and I'm determined to come out on top. I love that it's a fun reason to keep our text chains going while we're social distancing too. Start playing today. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. And you can even play online. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Was Junior really just trying to be one of the guys, a regular anonymous New Yorker? According to former New York Post reporter Linda Massarella, Junior's love life was everything but reserved. I was with the New York Post for many years and other media, including In Touch. But mostly it was when I was at the New York Post because I was on news rewrite and stories came in almost every day on JFK Jr. It seemed like every other week he was dating a new celebrity. We'd see photographs with him out on the town. Cindy Crawford, Sarah Jessica Parker, a lot. They became quite the item. I think that lasted almost a year. And then he started dating Errol Hannah. I believe at the same time, he had been dating Sarah Jessica Parker at the same time that he picked up with Daryl Hannah. And Daryl Hannah also was still dating Jackson Brown. So it was kind of a complicated, multi-leveled relationship going on there. But it was definitely romantic. Charles Onassis had liked Daryl Hannah at the beginning when she wasn't dating her son. But then when she started dating her son, she didn't like it very much because she did not want her son with an actress. Fellow reporter, Leon Wagner. John had a love-hate relationship with the press in general. He courted them, unlike his mother, and he provoked them. Like I say, I mean, he you know flaunted his body, his uh, presence, and he did things that were photogenic. They loved taking pictures of him on bicycles and uh, what have you, and um, and he gave him opportunity after opportunity. Not only that, but he would take his shirt off and wrap it around his waist and, you know, show off like that. Obviously, when he went out with Madonna, that caused a storm, unlike anything else. I mean, the, the combination of Madonna and John Jr. would just, you know, they'd be followed by hordes of photographers. They would go out in public all the time. And the photographers always seemed to get tipped off by somebody as to where they were going to be, whether that was from his camp or Madonna's, who knows, but they were there. And every time they showed up at a premiere, at a restaurant, at anything, they were there. He became huge when he started dating celebrities, in particular, Madonna. 
Madonna was a far bigger celebrity than he was. He's a political kid, but Madonna was full-on celebrity. And when they got together, it was photography heaven. Sparks were all over the place because a picture of those two good-looking people was worth a lot of money. There was also rumors that JFK Jr. was fooling around with Princess Diana. Everywhere he went, he was flirting with everybody. He was charms were all over the place, and he was having a good time. Jr., it seemed, was developing an ego to match his high-profile status. I think he always realized he was being followed. Since uh, I think since he came out of the womb, he was being followed by photographers. So um, at that point, there were a million photographers on him. When he was able to leave the law and the, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and go into publishing and hang out a little bit more, um, he had more freedom to be the exhibitionist that I think he really was. He was good looking. So he would walk around and kind of almost like the New York was his set. And each day he had a different outfit or a a beret on. Um, He would take to the streets, exercising, doing pull-ups in the park, riding his bike around, always had a different outfit or with his shirt off. And I remember he always had a collection of hats. You know, jaunty hats. He was not trying to blend in. This guy was showing off. If he was trying to blend in, he would have had a bicycle helmet on and not a red beret or these kinds of things or take his shirt off. Now, look, people take their shirts off and stuff, but you know he's always been surrounded by photographers, so you know that there's going to be one around the corner. So it seemed that he was doing this because uh, it was feeding his ego and he loved it. He did not have problems with photographers. He liked photographers. He liked the attention. But as Andy Tillett and Linda Massarella explained, Junior's love of the limelight naturally began to raise concerns for his safety. Here's this guy, the most famous man in America, the son of JFK, the nephew of RFK, for many seen as their heir to their legacy, a future president, and on top of that, he's dating genuine A-list celebrities. And he's just cycling around New York without a care in the world, hanging out in Central Park, drinking in coffee shops. And you know, his dad and uncle were both assassinated, and he doesn't seem to be in the slightest bit concerned about that. His mother didn't like it, that he was dating movie stars and getting all this attention. The more that he was out there in Central Park, running around with Madonna, running around clubbing with Daryl Hannah, running around like this, the more danger he was in. Now, you remember her husband, he was shot. So she was afraid of that stuff. She had fear. Her son had no fear. So he was running around. So I think finally at the end, he listened to his mother and uh, stopped dating the celebrities. His mother was very upset about Daryl Hannah because it was just too much, uh, it was just too much attention brought to the family, too much negative attention. And if you notice, when he stopped dating, the, well, at this time it was too late. By the time he stopped dating celebrities, he was already a celebrity. It caused him to be a celebrity. So there was no going back. There are photographers at his door every second. Paparazzo photographer Lawrence Schwartzwald saw the flip side of junior celebrity firsthand. Well, there was one or two photographers that were on him relentlessly and on her, and they were way over the top. One of the photographers I also saw later in front of the loft one day, John, go after this photographer and chase him. 
And as far as I, I'm aware of, he would tend to go John on and be a bit abusive and did not have a, a great relationship. But the same person was very abusive towards other photographers and me as well. And I've had run-ins with them. Look, they've always been a nasty bunch in the paparazzi group. And they're always some very nice, normal people. But there were, you know, a handful of real creepos and some that would really take it over the line. So I could certainly understand John's animosity and, and disdain and disgust for them. It was not just the attention of the paparazzi that was worrying. Here's reporter Leon Wagner. The Secret Service wasn't assigned to the children of former presidents like it is now. I mean, on the other hand, his mother could have hired private security, which she didn't do. It's curious because given the fact that she was so concerned about, you know, always telling him about how they're out to get us, because she didn't do anything about it. And he didn't do anything about it. The government wouldn't pay for Secret Service anymore when he turned 18. That's my understanding. So he had Secret Service until he became of age. So that would have had to been paid for. And I don't know if they had that much money. You would think that that would petrify a young man, knowing that his uncle and his father had in fact been killed. But he never let it restrict his life. He was almost reckless, really, about exposing himself, considering you know, he was one of the most famous young men on the planet. He regularly got threats from unhinged people who apparently wanted to make a name for themselves by hurting him or injuring him or frightening him or whatever. But instead of taking it seriously, he went roller skating in Central Park in the middle of the night. He was a regular jogger in Central Park. He rode his bicycle all around Manhattan with no guards, with no anything and exposed himself. In 1994, Junior started dating the stylish, yet media unknown, Carolyn Bassett. And the following year, he launched his George magazine. Was this an attempt to finally put the recklessness of his Playboy years behind him and step away from the limelight? For Mother Jackie Kennedy, at least, Carolyn was certainly more suitable daughter-in-law material. He was very respectful of what his mother wanted. His mother did not want him with an actress. His mother wanted him with somebody who was classy. In my opinion, Daryl Henn is pretty classy, and so is Sarah Jessica Parker, but his mother just didn't want him. So John F. Kennedy went to the Calvin Klein studio down in Manhattan and uh, to pick out some, he was going to get fitted for a suit when he saw Carolyn Bissett. She was an unpaid intern at Calvin Klein on the front desk and she wanted to be a designer. She was interested in fashion and in clothes. Beautiful blonde girl, classy, not an actress. Should be an actress, more beautiful than any kind of actress, but classy. And knowing full well that also that's the kind of woman his mother wanted him to be with. He dropped everything and was with her thereafter. And I don't think he was playing around on her, where he was playing around on Madonna, Sarah Jessica Parker. As soon as he met Carolyn Bissett, he stopped playing around and became very serious. If nobody knew who Carolyn Bissett was before, they certainly knew now. 
I think she was the first one to ever be photographed publicly wearing a thong. And I remember this, the photograph that came in, she and John were on a boat in Massachusetts and she was bent over, you could see her butt cheeks. And it was the first time that a thong had ever been seen. And so, of course, I think we put it on the front page and the caption was, what is this? Three months later, all the ladies are starting to wear thongs and showing their butt cheeks. But it was the first time that was ever seen. She considered herself a fashion icon. And as a fashion icon, more of a a Vogue and a Wintour kind of deal where she remained silent, didn't speak, and always had a good classy pose going on. For New York Post journalists Lawrence Schwartzwell and Linda Massarella, Junior and Carolyn's every move became front-page news. And the headlines were not always complimentary to the Kennedy legend. They remember one incident that illustrates both the level of media intrusion Junior's years of flirting for attention had brought to himself and the media's sometimes unkind reaction to that. The Post was very, as was the rest of the tabloid press and, and the whole world press, was interested in knowing exactly where he was living. It was reported he was living down somewhere in Tribeca. So, you know, they basically said, try to find out where he is. And, you know, I'm a pretty good detective and I have a lot of luck, as I said. So I'm going to go down to the neighborhood. I was really sort of reluctant. It was too quiet down there for me. Was, I didn't really like hanging out. I like to be moving around. And I just went into the Socrates coffee shop, which was about a block or two away, sort of a a famous diner in the neighborhood. You know, I sat down, had a cup of coffee, and I asked the boss, I said, do you happen to know where John F. Kennedy lives? Turns around and he pulls out an envelope addressed to him, which the post office accidentally delivered the mail to the, the diner instead of John's address. And it had 20 North Moore on it. So that told me his address. I eventually walked over there, hung out a little while, and all of a sudden I saw him, you know, coming around the corner, walking home, took a few photographs. You know, he knew the cat was out of the bag. A few minutes later, his, I think it was his butler or assistant that worked for him, came down with a little yellow post-it note asking me, if I publish a photo, please don't reveal the address. And it wasn't beautifully written. I think there were some grammatical and spelling errors. And I wrote back a note to him, uh, assuring that I wouldn't. And my note was just as badly written as his. And uh, the Post didn't publish the address, but they published a story about him giving me the note. John Jr. sent a note, personally addressed to the photographer, Dear Lawrence, I don't know how you did it, but you found me on my first day. I'd really appreciate it if you could give me some privacy because my girlfriend and I are moving in here and I don't want people scaring her, okay? It was a very well-written, sweet note, signed John F. Kennedy Jr. Please do not give out my address, he said. Lawrence brings it in to the post. He said, well, I got some photographs, but John F. Kennedy asked me not to use them or to use them, but not to divulge his new address because they don't have any security in place. They've got nothing in place. So we look at the note and it was a beautiful note, dear Lawrence you know, regards John F. Kennedy Jr. But something was wrong, which was the word address was misspelled. You know, address is spelled A-D-D-R-E-S-S. He had it with just one D, A-D-R-E-S-S. People were laughing. The editors were laughing. Of all the things that 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 note was, it was a personal note. It was well said. Why? 
because he had always been the butt of jokes by not passing the law, by not being smart enough, by being too good looking to be smart. So we had the note, we're looking at it. So the decision was to make fun of John John again, stupid John John. I reached out to his people, I called over there and I looked at the note and in my judgment, I said, I don't think we should be doing a story about this. This is just nasty. <laughs> but of course, the editor said, oh, get over it. And I think there was a story. Yes, there was a story. I wrote the story, but I felt bad because I liked the guy and I did not have my name on it. So there was a story that existed about John F. Kennedy Jr. spelling mistakes on a personal note to a photographer. Junior had spent much of his 30s reveling in and even encouraging the media. But now, approaching the end of the decade, settled down with a wife and his own publishing venture, and with the press no longer fawning over him quite as often, it seemed that he was unable to put the genie back in the bottle, and the pressure began to tell. After they were married, it was a huge worldwide story, and the pictures, almost everything you shot, if it was any good, would sell around the world. And that was a little difficult for him. He, he kind of lost his privacy down there. Carolyn, his wife, was really had a difficult time with it. John introduced her to the press right after they returned home from the honeymoon. And, you know, there are probably about 40 photographers and video photographers outside the loft. You know, I had a very famous picture where he was holding her hand and they came out the door on Northmore Street. And she was terrified. You see, the vein in her neck was just bulging. And he was looked as relaxed as all could be. He looked happy and, you know, comfortable with the press. And I kind of knew at that point that there was going to be problems in their marriage because her visceral reaction to being in the public eye was horrific. It was, it was so apparent in her body language that I just knew that it wasn't going to work out. And we learned subsequently that there were so many problems in their marriage. You never know what would have turned out, but it didn't look like it was going to last to me. And they were both very nice people, but it just, their temperaments were totally different. Suddenly, the world was seeing another side of America's golden boy. Well, she was feisty. You know, I mean, those famous photographs of them where they had that huge fight. I mean, they were going at it. Here's reporter Andy Tillett. Junior and Carolyn were caught on camera. It's actually on video. You can find it on YouTube if you look. Um, having a huge row in Battery Park in New York, screaming at each other. It's not only verbal, but they're both getting physical. She's pushing him. At one point, he looks like he's sobbing with his head between his knees. And it's all there in public for the entire world to see. It's incredible, really. Junior also began to lash out at the very paparazzi photographers he had once courted, as this audio tape of him physically attacking a photographer clearly demonstrates. Don't do that. Don't come up to my girlfriend when she's on the beach alone. They were just always up in their faces, constantly following them day in, day out, everywhere they went. You know, they would get mouthy with them. He was becoming more assertive, perhaps even aggressive. At times, unafraid to criticise the media, get on his front foot and even challenge them. There were several incidents where JFK Jr. lost his temper with the press. And of course, every time he did, 
there would be a photographer there to take a picture of it. One time in Hyannis Port, he tipped a bucket of water over a paparazzo. Another time in New York, he reached inside the car of two photographers and tried to take their keys. And what happens? The National Enquirer ran the pictures with the headline, JFK Goes Berserk, because that was the story. Reporter Leon Wagner, who covered Junior's life since his teenage years, now, the times where he really went sour on the paparazzi, of course, when he was married to Carolyn, they were fighting all the time, and they fought in public for reasons best known to themselves. I guess just because when they were in public, they, they wouldn't hesitate to have these screaming matches. That obviously was a photo opportunity on top of a photo opportunity. He would threaten them from time to time. I mean, he'd almost get violent with them. He cursed at them and what have you, which only provoked them further because him being crazy is a better picture than him being sober and just standing there. Was the pressure of JFK Jr.'s birthright beginning to show? Were cracks appearing in his handsome facade? Presidential historian Doug Weed believes that despite Jr.'s years as a self-styled playboy Prince of New York, the spectre of the Oval Office really never stopped haunting him. You can say, I'm doing something spiritual. It's more important. I'm feeding the hungry. I'm not going to be like my father. You can do something different from your father. But as one of the presidential children told me, whether you go into the military or you go into education or you go into politics, or you go into science, if you go into the arts, it doesn't matter what you do. Eventually, if you're successful, you're back in the East Room where the president is putting the Medal of Freedom around your neck or you're back in his cabinet. That's where you go if you're successful in life. And that's where we, presidential children, start. We're in the East Room and we got to somehow go out there and do something to get back in. And that's pretty tough. Next time on Fatal Voyage, the death of John F. Kennedy Jr., was that famous Kennedy self-confidence beginning to unravel into bad-tempered, reckless arrogance? It was time for me to find out, to do my own digging into otherwise secret documents tucked away in the FBI vaults and make an astonishing discovery. Hang on, hang on. November 25, 1994, it mentions Joe Biden. Latent fingerprints have been taken off a letter been delivered to Joe Biden's office in Washington. Dear Senator Biden, you are a traitor. You must die. It's supposed to have been signed by JFK Jr. What? The Death of JFK Jr. is hosted by myself, Colin McLaren. It's executive produced by Dylan Howard and Matt Sprouse and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson and Andy Tillett and the series is written by Dominic Hutton. Reporting by Douglas Montero, the series is mixed and engineered by Sean Crabbett and Sam Adder. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, the Death of JFK Jr. wherever you get your podcasts. Let's jump into Pepper's world of play. Look for spring flowers. 
hunt for muddy puddles and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.